Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 135 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center, the University of Texas. It is the 9-11 anniversary in 2019. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. 18 years. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's been a while, and, uh, and there's striking differences in the world and striking similarities. Well, I was, I was, I was thinking, you know, the, the John Bolton resignation slash firing slash whatever that was. Like, I, you know, I, was just, I was thinking about sort of the state of American foreign policy and national security policy on the 18th anniversary. And it's just, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that anyone would have thought we'd be here. And I'm not sure anyone would have been happy to hear that this is where we are. Well, so, you know, we, sh- we can jump right into this because item one on our run of show today yeah. is to talk about the, the 9-11 anniversary and, and so forth. Uh, real quickly, the other things we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about the Terrorist Screening Center uh, ruling in El Hadi versus Cable. Or Cabo, I may be mispronouncing Charles Cable's name there. Sorry if I am. Uh, we're going to talk about some military commission-related things, including a ruling by Judge Lamberth, Hookham, Judge Lamberth, UT grad, uh, on medical access. Oh, it's a rough week for that. Yeah, we uh, we all yeah in sports in our sports segment in frivolity we'll note the rough week for the Longhorns. Um, we'll note the passing of Judge Robertson, yeah. uh, and then as a more serious part of our frivolity, we will talk about. Uh, By the way, Judge Pro- that's not part of their frivolity. Judge Robertson passing is not is not. Yeah, I'm sorry. The segue <laughs> there sounded wrong. There was meant to be a period, not a comma. Um, Although I have to tell you, when we turn to frivolity, right. Um, I have to tell you that, wait, one of my students found something that I was, one of my con law students, and I was like, this is the best thing ever. So you know how in Marbury, the whole fight is over, well, not the fight, but like Marshall has to read Section 13 of the Judiciary Act to authorize the Supreme Court to issue an original writ of mandamus. And the ambiguity in that section stems largely from the uncertain placement of a semicolon. Right, right. Right? Yeah. Um, the casebook I use renders the semicolon as a period. No, as a wait. colon, as a full colon, as a straight wait, colon. Wait, what? Yes. You're, wait, which book? Wait, the, for, the, the, you know, Breast Balkan Levinson. Well, it's the case book I use. I know. And in the, and oh, in the, no. and in the footnote accompanying <laughs> that portion of Marbury where it reprints section 13, it renders the semicolon as a colon. Oh, Lord. Okay. Are you serious? I'm glad you told me that. And so I went back. I actually went back and looked at like the prior the, editions. The, no, I went oh. back and looked at the statutes at large, right? To make yeah. sure that I was not hallucinating, yeah, that yeah. my slides weren't wrong. Uh, some editor got hold of that and thought, like, oh, that can't be right. Who would possibly write it that way? Like, it's a 1790s document. It was written with lots of strange punctuation. You know, I had a law school exam uh, where one of the questions gave this long kind of piece of text like that and said, uh, what one piece of punctuation? Situation would you change to significantly alter the meaning of this contract? Uh-huh. I was so mad. I thought that was not a worthy question. Um, my, you know, one of my professors in law school, Harold Coe, gives a talk called "How to Live Your Life as a Lawyer," um, and and the sort of the 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 shtick at the beginning of the talk is the mu- many different ways you could punctuate that 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 statement. Like, how do you live your life? Question mark as a lawyer? Question mark <laughs> eats, shoots, and leaves. Basically, or, exactly. Let's so. eat, Grandma. <laughs> my kids love that one. <laughs> Or, or, you know, he hired the prostitutes, comma, Kennedy and Nixon, right? The, the Oxford comma. This is, you know, the... So are, are you an Oxford comma man? Are you kidding? Is I that a joke? Please say yes. I, mean, I, 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 I mean, thought we were going to have a serious rupture if you were not going to be... How could I not be an Oxford comma person? Like, it literally changes the meaning of... The absence of an Oxford comma changes the meaning of many sentences. I know. No, it drives me crazy. Yes. Okay, D- Dear listeners, I, I'm sorry. If you are anti-Oxford comma, I, we can't be friends. We, can't. we just can't be friends. <laughs> well, we've certainly found something we can heartily agree on there. I, I'm... 
We hardly agree on most of the things we talk you about. You know, on I this think podcast. we we got to work harder on that. I think it. I think it's there's a, a, a sign of the times. A meta observation about the show. I think it's because, as you, yeah, you beat me to the punch and you said it better. It's a sign of the times, meaning specifically that. Whereas in years past, a show of this kind would be very much down in the weeds of, all right, there's this new statute, there's this new ruling, what do we think? We divide as we traditionally have much more. We end up talking so much about kind of core rule of law, separation of power stuff in the American tradition, where what's going on is not a divide within the boundaries of the traditional perspective on these things, but rather this uh, remarkable outsider perspective that's now driven out through the White House that we find ourselves aligned on these core rule of law things and not able to debate and disagree as much as we might like. Just stop your crying. It's a sign of the times. It is. Welcome to the final show. Hope you're wearing your best clothes. (laughs) What's that from? Harry Styles. Oh, is it? Just nice. stop yeah. your crying. You know, I will give it a, a little shot. I will say compliment to Harry Styles. I don't love a lot of newer acts, but uh, he's got like a nice sort of uh, a, a, a tradition of doing call outs to prior hits, yeah, prior songs yeah. that shows a lot of homage. appreciation for. Yeah, a lot of right. homage. Um, there's one song, I forget which one it is, where he has a bit in it that comes, sh- it's a clear homage back to a tra- the song in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory where, yeah. where Gene Wilder's singing it, the Pure Imagination yeah. song. Can I, wait, so something I always wondered about, homage versus homage. I always say homage. So I say homage when it's like it is an homage yeah. versus paying homage, paying homage to. Oh, I see. So do you do the hard O or the, I, I almost, I don't think no, I ever. No, but do you say, do, no, do you pronounce the H or not? I don't do the like, H either way, but I might say um, paying homage, it's an homage. And that doesn't that, make that's any what I'm sense. Saying, right? It's the same yeah, word, yeah, right? But I wouldn't do the H sound either way, but you're right. Hmm. Right? Like you wouldn't say he paid homage to, you know, yeah. like hey, you, you know, President Trump this morning paid paid homage to the victims of 9 11. Well, well, he <laughs> might. Um, <laughs> do, you, do you think in our discussion of Oxford commas and the proper pronunciation of homage uh, that we've lost all listeners or just. To, to the contrary, I'm willing to bet that there are plenty of listeners out there with some pedantic grammar, you know, <laughs> picadillos. You're not um, suggesting our show attracts uh, a particular, you know, I mean, well, this is why I was people so excited. who care about the details. This is why I was so excited. I, I, I told my students, I said, I am so excited that you guys notice this because, like, one of the hardest things to get first year law students to appreciate is that, care like, the details. nuance, nuance and details. Attention to detail is such an important skill for being a good lawyer. That's right. Absolutely. So, um, one more random note before we get to the run of show, or before we actually or, get to the show. Yeah. Um, tonight, Karen and I are going to see Les Mis. Guess what? What? You are too? We are too. Oh my gosh. Ah, it's a Les Mis party. <laughs> All right. That's great. It doesn't get, any, doesn't get any nerdier than that, man. Wow. 1830s Paris. Here we come. Well, not for, for Montreux-sur-Mer Su, Mon, Mon, first, like, right? The, right, yeah, there's, a, there's a array of, that's we, we don't get to Paris to look down. All right, we're, uh, the kid, not all the kids, but uh, Riley and Kate are coming with us. Oh, by the way, happy birthday, Alice. Oh, very kind. I can't believe she's, she's 10. 10. 10. 10. And you and Karen uh, babysat for the big sisters while, well, while Heather was pregnant. Was pregnant. We I lived rem- in D.C. I, I remember. I know. All right. Uh, uh, so Frivaldi amended to include Les, Les Mis. <laughs> all right. That's pretty great. And, you know, we have we have our, our listeners who don't love all the sports ball talk. I uh, assure you we can go musicals as well as we've proven many times. But we're definitely I mean, there's more to say now. on the Les Mis front than there is on the, you know, the sports ball. I mean, I, you know. I'm sure we can segue into the Giants and their crushing defeat in the hands of the Cowboys. That's really not. I, I, I'm okay if we skip that. All right, so to pivot from there to our run of show and start yeah. with a, a more serious note, um, we want to begin because this is the anniversary of 9-11, and uh, um, this hour is you know, right in the thick of things. So 
we, we can talk a little bit more on the remembrance front, but I actually think the, the opening comments about your observation about who would have who would possibly have been able to imagine, you know, where things are in this weird moment we're at historically, setting aside all the, the weirdness of, of, of Trumplandia type stuff, which is a heck of a lot to set aside. Um, it's interesting to ponder from a counterterrorism law and policy perspective. Yeah. Um, and let's sort of try to do the exercise off the cuff here. So it's it's a week or two after 9-11 in 2001. And if we're imagining uh, what the steady state, if we can get to one, what a steady state might be in 2019 vis-a-vis the problem of terrorism in general and vis-a-vis Al-Qaeda in particular and the the larger network of which it was a part, but not necessarily coextensive. Is this actually too different? Like what, what would most surprise you about today's circumstances and what would least surprise you? Well, I think I would be most surprised and pleased, right, that we had gone 18 years without another major significant um, international terrorist attack on U.S. soil, um, right, that, that off the cup. I mean, if we're just thinking about like in the immediate reaction. Yeah, yeah. You say 18 years? Oh, yeah, we'll have had 9-11 scale uh, violence and death. As a result of an international plot, at least a few times in that range, we came awfully close. Sometimes we did, we did, but but we did, but you know, yeah. Now, you, I think some listeners will probably think like, hey, wait, don't discount Major Hassan and yeah. and, and, and yeah, what happened no, to Fort Hood. Listen, there has been, but there, but it's a scale question. I was going to say there has been there has been international terrorist motivated violence. There has been domestic terrorist motivated violence. Mm-hmm. Like I don't mean to make. No, light we've of had it. no spectaculars. That's the thing. Um, you know, and yes, we came close a couple times. You know, the underwear bomber. That's what I was thinking of. Um, Richard Reed, shoe bomber. Right, Faisal Shahzad in Times Square. Yeah, I mean, like, yep. we've had, you know. Um, it's not for lack of trying. But, but you know, so so I think it's worth stressing that, like, from the perspective of the sort of scary, you know, traumatizing first days and weeks, I think the, the, the most important headline is, you know, that at that level, at least thus far, that's been a one-off. Mm-hmm. Um Beyond that, I mean, I think the problem is it was so hard in those first days and weeks to know what the footprint was going to look like. Right. Maybe we should change it to be one like after year. one year yeah. when it when the when the basic outlines of where we are were in place. So I think one year. So on September 11, 2002, right, I would have been surprised to know that 17 years later we were still holding people at Guantanamo. Um, right. That that uh, yeah, I, I, I think I would have bet against that probably. Right. Um, I certainly would not have believed that the 9-11 trial right. wasn't long since over. Right, that, that it was a headline that... that it just, well, of that course, it wait, i got to amend that because, of course, in 2002, we didn't have... Uh, elite, I don't know exactly when the dates were. We I got thought, KSM. I thought, and, I, thought, I thought it was the fall of 02. Was it later? Right, but the public anyway. didn't know anyways. That's right. So, so if we, if we <laughs> change the positioning, put, put the marker at 2006 and kind of have everything major about yeah. those years is more or less known, I absolutely would not have believed that 13 years later we still haven't had hadn't run a completely through all the military commission right. trials, but certainly the 9-11 right, trials. Just how little progress we had made on the sort of closure side of it, right? That And, and I wrote a piece about this for the Austin American Statesman, our local paper, mm-hmm. um, on the anniversary a couple of years ago, right? That, that for the 15th anniversary, I wrote this piece about how the most, you know, sort of heartbreaking thing to me about each of these successive anniversaries is how each one comes and goes without closure, um, right? That we, you know, we so, haven't had... Anyway, sorry. Yeah. No, I, I'm sorry. I'm interrupting you. No, Go no. ahead. No, no. I, I, said, I said what I was going to say. Okay. So on closure, a closure vis-a-vis KSM, Ramzi bin Al-Shib in particular. Those absolutely. most directly responsible like, for what happened on It's the, the very, you know, whether this is Monday morning quarterback or not, it's, it, it, I think it cannot be gainsaid that the, that closure and the resolution would have come vastly quicker in the civilian criminal justice system. I just don't think we can 
plausibly argue no. against that. Um, closure on the larger question of al-Qaeda and, and Islamist extremist terrorism. No, that doesn't surprise me that we're still in the in the sustained management uh, process. And I, I think we'll remain that for the duration. I don't, so, I don't anticipate that ending anytime. And then there's also, and this may be a good segue, right, to, to the first sort of immediate news story that we want to talk about. And then there's also the specter of the ongoing armed conflict. Yeah. Um, and, you know, would we have been surprised, you know, 17 years ago today, 15 years ago today, 13 years ago today, um, one, right, that the AUMF, the Authorization for the Use of Military Force, is still the principal legal yeah. framework for what we're doing. I would have bet that we'd have a refreshed yep. version. Yep. We got a partial refreshment of sorts in the NDAA about eight years Just ago. Just on the detention front. On though. detention. But, right. it, but, but that was the part that needed it the most at the yeah. time. I would have thought that by now we would have had some kind of refreshment in refining. Yeah. And I'm really, you know, I understand absolutely now why it didn't happen. Yeah. But that's surprising. Um, second, ground troops in Afghanistan, right? Would we have been surprised 17, 16, 13 years ago yeah. that here in 2019 we still have a footprint and indeed that we're in the midst of trying to figure out whether and under what terms to extricate ourselves from that footprint? So on that, my answer would differ depending on where we set that initial yeah. marker. Yeah. If it's if it's like you know January 2002, I'd be very surprised to know that more than 17 years later, we're absolutely still there with thousands of troops and still actively dealing with the, the, the idea that the Taliban would still be holding so much territory. If they were, that we'd still be there nonetheless, that would have seemed really surprising to me. But if you ask that same question circa 2006 with several years of experience observing uh, how things have gone in Afghanistan, I'm not nearly so surprised to be told that it, more than a decade from now, we'll still be in a roughly similar spot. Um, I actually think that that is, at a certain point, it became clear that this was a, uh, we were sort of in a tar baby situation where the cost of leaving fully and truly would be prohibitive so that it's unlikely that any sort of Obama, Bush type president's not going to do it. Now, Trump might, right. Trump might, the, the firing of Bolton, so who knows is, what that might unleash in terms of his neo-isolationist sentiments, right? So this may be a good segue. So, right, so because I think we could, we could, we could do all, we could spend all day on, on. And by the way, I can almost hear people saying like, neo-isolationism, I, I, I don't mean to say that everyone who supports withdrawal uh, from Afghanistan is a neo-isolationist. I'm trying to make a claim about Trump's sort of version of America first. So here's the so this is what I want to segue to, right? So so we had this crazy Twitter bomb, right, that the president dropped. Was it Saturday? Um, about the sort of you know I had planned this secret you know peace negotiation thingy at Camp David, but because an American soldier died in an attack in Kabul, yeah. you know, screw this, all bets are off. Screw it. Never mind. Ixnay yeah. on the secret talks. A um, so there's a lot to unpack there, especially now that it seems like from the reporting that particular episode might have been the final straw for John Bolton. I mean, that seems to be the story coming out this morning about why Bolton was finally, you know, why the relationship that never made sense finally right. went past the breaking point. Yeah, yeah. No, that that makes entire sense. It's easy to imagine Bolton just being, and, and by the way, not just Bolton, because to say Bolton, it's almost to imply that somehow it's sort of this like a neoconish view. It's easy to imagine a wide range of officials you know, being just deeply Livid. upset about the possibility that we're going to go with the Taliban the way we've gone with Kim Jong-un and the North right. Koreans, this sort of comical, uh, no-substance, personalized diplomacy that's looking for a symbolic uh, thing that could be described as a victory, but actually isn't backed by uh, a deep foundational architecture. Coupled, coupled 
with the terrible optics of doing it two days before the anniversary, no. right? Like, oh, I mean, yeah. I, like, I, yeah. I mean, I like actually how was that ever something somebody thought was a good idea? Right. I actually think it's a different story in June, right, or in December. But you know, to invite senior Taliban leaders to Camp David, which by the way means overriding a whole bunch of restrictions on travel and entry right. and all that other Lots stuff. Lots of national security waivers, right? Which, by the way, the president has the authority to. I mean, that th- this is not like a breaking the law. Yeah, type a number thing. of people are like, "Wait, how was he going to do this?" Like, you know, been done. He could have been done. Um, but the notion that like the op- the optics of doing it on September eighth, um, right? And no, that's September- just, so, it's just so obvious. But that reflects the 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 broken staffing process. Um, which the the Bolton resignation, ironically, may actually help. I mean, by all accounts, uh, he was not exactly yeah. a friend to the NSC's actual sort of workaday yep. functioning. Yep. Uh, although whether whether what happens next will be any better is so. This, so this is the last question I wanted to ask about about the sort of the Taliban peace talk. Well, so I have, I have two questions. One is, do you think? Trump really meant it, or do you think he wanted to be able to blow it up, right? Like, like he wanted, he wanted, you know, he wanted the sort of the headline of blowing it up to, you know, be in anger over something. Like, he was going to find some reason to blow it up, or do you think he actually was serious about it until, until the the the, the attack in Kabul that provoked him happened? My my pet theory, my speculation is that his instincts are to not have expensive ongoing, especially ground commitments overseas. Especially if you can get like the photo op of like signing a deal. So so first factor, just a general policy disposition yeah. that is sort of in the, the sort of the some people disparage, sometimes I disparage as neo-isolationists, but you know, keep don't 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 keep forces abroad, and certainly don't keep them in expensive combat situations unless you have to. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, that's like there's there's an honorable version of that where it's well thought through and well defensible. Um, I do think that's his sort of policy instinct. I think that there's the ever-present drive towards having a photo op moment. So like his his vision, such as it is, of the non-economic aspects of foreign policy is glamour shots. Right, and so he you know, right. does some of that with North crossing Korea. the bridge to shake hands with Kim Jong. Yeah, yeah, like right. that. To, that to him is the point. It's right. that's not the journey. That's the the destination. Right, the, po- it's, it's the, right. the polish is the point, not right, the substance. Right. Um, and then, and then the third factor that I think probably loomed large here is just the uh, the the wild unpredictability of his whimsical decisions to try something, then insist upon it, and go down a certain road, right. and then not think twice about throwing other people under the bus and blowing it up when it suddenly becomes apparent this is a bad idea. Uh, and then trying to turn that into a social media moment, and then right, and then trying to claim some kind of victory from the thing that he that only happened because he invented it in the first place. Right. I do think I think all those things together. You know, all that said, we need we need to be careful. Although I, for one, don't think that the deal they were driving towards was was ever like a real deal or was a good idea, and it was probably going to have a billion different problems with it. But uh, bear in mind too that it looked like it was shaping up to be. Some kind of situation where we were still going to keep, you know, five thousand plus yeah, yeah. forces in the ground, and so like the practical difference uh, in terms of what our actual commitments there would be, I don't know how much of a so-called peace deal and, and removal of troops this was ever, really ever going to. Well, be. so my sense was it was at least going to shift the sort of the the operating footprint of the troops on the ground from you know combat operations and combat support to more sort of security. Right, a secure a security providing function, which is not the same thing. I, I think that uh, they would have kept the the fully kinetic CT function vis-a-vis Al Qaeda and the yeah. Islamic State, and that functionally the labels would change, but it would be the exact same as before. It's just that no longer would uh, when the Afghan National Army requested an airstrike on right. a Taliban position, no would longer would, would we do it. Right, um, which you know it's a hell of a thing to say. 
Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've, I think I've said this before, but if I haven't, I mean, I'm I'm deeply torn about the sort of the, forget the specifics, right, about the sort of the, the idea of a, of a peace deal with the Taliban. Like, I think, you know, I probably want more from it than we'd ever get. Like That's the thing. And so, and so like, I would want more conditions than I think we're in a position to impose. That's right. Um, there's, there's, it's hard to see the version of this that doesn't sell uh, the Afghan government and women that's in my, Afghanistan that's my, that's my and, and freedoms in Afghanistan down the river. Right. So it's not the idea of some kind of agreement with the Taliban to which I'm averse. It's the likelihood that any deal is going to is gonna be a bad one. And if that's the case, you either grasp the nail and take the bad deal so you could wash your hands of it. B, you maintain status quo. And that's, I think, actually the most likely outcome. C, you surge resources and commitments and somehow muster the political will to change the balance such that the deal you can strike is very different. Yep. Uh, I don't see that happening whatsoever. <sighs> under under any possible path forward because either Trump's reelected or it's a Democratic administration that's not going to make some dramatically different uh, troop commitment to Afghanistan. It's, so, yeah. status quo. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, 10 years from now, we're going to have the same conversation. Um, and that's pretty sad. Should we so talking about counterterrorism? One of the things that changed after 9 11 was uh, a, a vast panoply of structures for trying to better tr- uh, know what all the dots are, to connect the dots, all this sort of intelligence collection and analysis and diffusion of knowledge that finds expression in things like the National Counterterrorism Center, but also the creation of uh, the Terrorist uh, Screening Center, which is basically uh, an FBI administered entity. That uh, the core function, uh, supervising and maintaining the terrorist screening database, the TSDB. The terrorist screening database is sort of a, uh, if you will, kind of a first stage catch-all for potentially relevant persons. From that sort of uh, what Jeff Kahn described in a really useful piece on Just Security recently about the case we're about to talk about, Jeff describes as sort of the ER list it's sort of the easiest to get into and has the relatively fewest consequences. It's when you then take a subset of those names and create like the no-fly list, you then have more serious, more concrete consequences, and there's different standards for ending up on that list. Jeff describes it as a hub-and-spokes model of creating the various lists that are used for tracking potential terrorists or persons, however we describe them, that are on these lists. Um, And there's been lots of litigation about the particular list, the the more action-oriented list, like the no-fly list. Um, here, in a case uh, called El Hadi versus Cable, um, Eastern District of Virginia, Judge Trenga ruling, uh, we're talking about the master list, the terrorist screening database itself. And in a, in a pretty important decision last week, uh, he finds that it violates due process. That that so we should say what it is. Yes. Well, no. So the TS. DB, the or terrorist at least, or at least, or at least the way. I mean, so so I actually think this was a confusion in how a lot of the media stories portrayed Judge Trenga's decision, right? Which is, um, some stories suggested he had struck down the database. No, right? he hadn't or, done that, right? Or he'd right. thrown out the database. We found that the whole database was unconstitutional. No, it was a little more specific, right? That the way American citizens, in particular, are added Absolutely. to the database. So you have to be a, a Fifth Amendment rights holder to, for this ruling to be relevant for you right. to begin with, right? And so that there were due process problems both on the on the procedural side and on the vagueness side 
in the means by which individuals are added and the inability to sort of challenge wrongful inclusion, or at least the 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 relatively weak, the, the inadequate ability. Right. So the idea the idea boils down to a, a claim that is not at all surprising, of course, that it is a bit of a black box exactly how one ends up in this first stage master list. Um, the you know the further you get from actual consequences the more likely it is that the government's acting with comparative discretion, right? So when you get to the point of arrest, um, it's the most controlled as you pull back to, say, the no-fly list, as you get back to this master list of potential persons of interest, and, and perhaps even predecessor to that, less and less plausibility for someone who might be in the bucket to claim that they have some right to notification or address. Uh, it's a spectrum, if you will. And this is a, a Pretty dramatic intervention to say that, nonetheless, even though the TSDB is one of the earlier stage lesser consequence yeah. uh, buckets, there is still an acute Fifth Amendment problem. And so we should say, I mean, so the, in 2017, the reported size of the list was roughly 1.2 million individuals, right, in the TSDB, including, we think, somewhere in the neighborhood of 4,500 to 5,000 U.S. citizens. Right. So this is a relatively low filter list right. compared to, say, the no-fly no fly list. list. And there's been, I mean, folks might remember, we've talked in the past about some of the no-fly list litigation. And Bobby, there have been, right, lower, there, there have been lower court rulings finding comparable procedural problems with the no-fly list. We've talked about the Ibrahim case, right? Rahim yeah, Ibrahim. Right. Um, this is the this is sort of taking the logic of some of those cases, Ibrahim and Latif, and applying it to the much bigger, as you say, broader and sort of lower level database. Right. And, and so one thing that might happen eventually in this litigation, you, you might see a Fourth Circuit or, or perhaps Supreme Court decision basically saying that what would be true in terms of what due process demands and what when the prohibition on unduly vague uh, rules might demand at the more consequential no-fly list stage may not be true, but Judge Stranga thinks it is true and that there is a standard that's been violated here. Critically, and this is an important point to get out, he has not said what process is due so this yet. is so this is actually so so I, I you know I, I moonlight for CNN helping them with their legal coverage and we had this whole long back and forth when the ruling came out I think it was a Friday um, like that. and about how big a deal it was right and my reaction was it is a pretty big deal but the big deal is the remedy. Right, right, exactly. Like, and and, and Tranga quite overtly punts the remedy to subsequent briefing at a later decision. That's right. So there's some hyperventilating going on right now. And it's not warranted yet. Might be warranted soon. But it's entirely possible that the remedy, he says, is ultimately demanded as, as the constitutional minimum process could be relatively modest as a change from the status quo. That said... I think it's more likely that he's heading towards, he's certainly not, I think, heading towards an ex-anti-notification no, no, regime. No, 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 no. Nobody thinks that no. because, of course, the whole system doesn't work <laughs> to tip people off. Like, right. hey, we're, we might add you to this <laughs> list. I mean, I guess it would still serve certain functions, but you'd lose a lot yes. of investigative uh, yes. utility. That's yes. not going to happen. That would get reversed if it happened. The question is, what kind of post addition to the database, what kind of notification, when do you get it, what degree of detail are you given, and what degree of access to the government's information do you get to challenge it? And and, and what is the standard the government's going to apply in reviewing your case, right? I mean, that's the... Right. So, you know, if folks remember, I mean, the, in the Ibrahim case, one of the things that came out about how she ended up on the no-fly list was that the relevant 
low-level government officer, I don't remember what agency he worked for, it might have been CBP, but I don't remember, um, had literally reversed the boxes on the form, right, had, had checked the, had checked the, the, like, her, meant, meant, it was just an error, it was, it was a, it was a, it was a paperwork error, had meant to check the box, like, she's cool, let, not you know, terrorist, not terrorist, and instead it checked all the other boxes, checked totally terrorist, yes, it's like, it's like, it's the like student, a teaching evaluation, it's like a student in my fed courts <laughs> class, who said I was awesome, and then gave me all ones, the awesome was sarcastic, yeah, <laughs> awesome with a capital A. Well, you know, awesome has a has an original meaning of magnitude without I, necessarily conveying. A, all this is to say that I think for like the fourteenth time so far today, we agree that this is a significant ruling, but that the real significant yeah. ruling is still to come, okay. which is exactly what Judge Trenga says the plaintiffs are entitled to by dint of the constitutional violation yeah. he's identified. Well, so we maybe we disagree about whether there was indeed a constitutional violation, whether he got that part right. I assume you're friendly to the ruling. I am. Yeah. You're not. Not. So really? there you go. Hey. Yeah. I'm not saying there's no constitutional interest, but I think at the On both the procedural due process issue and vagueness, you think you think he's wrong on both? Well, I don't okay, so to be fair, I, I don't have a firm view on it yet. I haven't really okay. parsed it to fair form enough. a strong view. But my inclination is to think that at the TSDB stage, in contrast to the no fly list stage, um, there's just a much greater margin of appreciation for for what the government's doing there because there's less harm to the because there's less consequence arising from the but but I'm inclusion. willing to be persuaded that the amount of consequence is in fact on close inspection enough to tip it over so that's why I'm not taking a I will position. attempt to persuade you then good all right all right maybe, maybe we're going to revisit it as soon as maybe the an remedies. intermission tonight yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what do you one think of, what do you think day of more one day more to convince you that there was a due process <laughs> violation. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, segue to Milcoms. Oh, yeah. There's all that stuff, too. So um, on this 18th anniversary, we do have some interesting developments on the Guantanamo side. Um, first, actually, so first, well, there are a couple of sort of quick hitting stories. The first is that the lead learned counsel for KSM has actually announced his intent to depart. This is not a big deal. Like, no, when, you, when you're litigating Bleak House, you know, there's going to be turnover in yes. the personnel. And, you know, the judges can't have all the fun. Um. Indeed. Um, anyway, this is not. There was already a backup in place. This is not a spathified problem with regard to appointment, so that's all fine. Um, the second thing I wanted to flag was actually an NPR story this morning um, by Sasha Pfeiffer. Does that name sound familiar to you? Uh, it does. Sasha Pfeiffer. Was there a lawfare connection with Sasha? I don't or? think so. I think she was. So she was one of the spotlight reporters who helped break the. Oh yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The, uh -huh. the Boston. Oh, so I, I know. Yes. Okay. Sorry, McAdams. that was out of context. Play, played yeah. by Rachel McAdams in the movie. Yeah, yeah, right. Um. So anyway, so uh, Sasha Pfeiffer has a story in NPR today. Um. About basically how much Guantanamo is costing, and NPR apparently did this like deep investigation into the amount of money we're spending and where the money's going. And concluded that so far we spent over six billion dollars on Guantanamo. That the annual outlays, at a minimum, are going to continue to be in the ballpark of four hundred million dollars. And that apparently there's a fair amount of concern, including from Gary Brown, the former legal advisor to the Convening Authority, from folks who have been on the government side of this process, that there's a ton of waste um, in all of this money, and that the you know the, there's sort of not a lot of principled you know. How can we sort of tighten our belt versus just throwing money at problems? So do we need a special inspector general for Guantanamo? A, a, sig, a SIGITMO? Sig, sig gig. A SIGITMO. Yeah. Um, well, Bobby, so of course, is referring to, to Cigar and, and, and to Cigar, yeah, right? The yeah, special inspector general for Afghanistan. No, it's in, look. It, in, uh, in, sorry, for Afghan reconstruction. Afghan reconstruction. I left out the R. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, for GITMO. 
But I, I mean, I, it, it, it is a relevant point that I think we too often leave out of the story about Guantanamo, which is the insane amount of money we're spending. So it's That's not super just. Expensive. It's right. So it's not just the sort of, you know, doubt about the continued policy utility. It's also that like stuff, you know, we are spending money to perpetuate this thing. I certainly agree that it's highly relevant. I think we have to modulate how we count it in the following two ways. One, we have to ask a comparative question, best estimate for each one of those expense items per year. Uh, how much of that, assuming that the civilian pathway would still be going in that year, which is a separate factor, yep. but if the civilian factor, if the Bureau of Prisons were involved, if the federal courts were involved, how much money would be spent on the same functions uh, were it in the civilian system? Presumably, it'd be dramatically less because a lot of those institutions are there no matter what, and, and a huge amount of the, uh, the overhead, if you will, involved in sustaining these facilities, it has doesn't have to be done on a bespoke basis. You're spending that money with yeah. or without the Gitmo people. Yeah. But so so there's some amount though that number that four hundred million per year would be reduced some amount because it is expensive right. to it wouldn't be know, zero. supermax functioning and the rest. Uh, but then you have to factor into the idea that it wouldn't be year eighteen. That's right. At least for the trial aspects. That's right. It would it would be year eighteen for the detention aspects. But 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 I mean I think one of the things that, that the report on NPR points out is a lot of these costs are simply logistical, right? That that the amount of money the government's spending to bring everyone to Guantanamo. Right. I was gonna say just month. flying people back and, and forth. housing them and yeah, yeah. feeding them. It's just like you know, the just yeah. the Yeah. Okay. Which you would presumably cut substantially. Right. So, you know, there's an interesting background question of well, what's the right amount of money to be willing to spend if you otherwise we're okay with what's... And I don't know what the answer is, right. but I feel like it's a conversation we don't have enough. So kudos to NPR for at least, Absolutely. you know, giving well, us the in, data. And Sasha, of course, has, has been a recurring... We talk, we give a lot of kudos to Carol Rosenberg, yeah. but, but there are other journalists yep. who are also very engaged, and Sasha's yep. one of them. Yep. Um, okay. So um, speaking of Guantanamo, there was an interesting um, habeas decision yesterday uh, from your, your friend and mine, Judge Royce Lambert. That's right, Judge Lambert, the proud UT grad. Uh, let's talk about this medical access. So really. this is um, uh, one of the detainees, Sharkawi Al Haj, um, had sought a court order granting him access both to his medical records and to um, entitle him to be treated by an independent physician, who apparently the government was going to have to pay for. Like apparently, it was just the you know could his lawyers hire a physician who could come down to the base with them to examine Al Haj? Okay, I assume that's never happened previously. In all I'm not these 18 years. I'm not aware of any such example. Mm-hmm. Um, and which Judge Lam- and, and Al Haj had styled this as part of his access to the courts that you know his the the, the illnesses from which he's suffering are inhibiting his ability to right. participate. Because otherwise, it'd be a conditions of confinement claim prohibited by the Military Commission. Act, right? And raising the whole coterie of questions about, you know, can Congress actually... Anyway, right, yes. right. Um, so Lamberth is... It's interesting this is before Lamberth because Lamberth is actually the one who has articulated the most, I think, aggressive version of the detainee's right of access to the courts um, in his own prior rulings. But Lamberth rejects the claim in this case, um, largely because al Haj had not claimed any misconduct on the part of the medical personnel at Guantanamo, his claim his claim was not this that they had based. mistreated him, right? His claim was that they just they weren't good enough, like you know that that they yeah. were not providing the level of care that he could receive from someone else. Okay, makes sense. And Lambert says, you know, that may be true, but you know, you need the the the, the there's no impediment, right? The government is not actually in right. There's you. not a fault in intent on the part of the government that's intentionally getting in the way of your access to courts. You have a health problem. That's right. So otherwise. so he says, if Al Haj's health issues have left his counsel without access to their client and uninformed as to his condition, then relief might be appropriate. But Lambert but wasn't convinced there, that right? on that on the findings of this case, 
Um, right, that that because they can go there, yep. and the yep. government will pick up the tab. Yep, the court yeah. is satisfied that his physical and mental health are being closely monitored by Guantanamo medical personnel, and that his access to counsel is secure. Um, good faith concerns untethered to applicable law are not actionable. Yeah, sounds right. So I, you know, I don't know. I there's I, I think the way Lambert frames the issue, I think he's right. I think the 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 sort of the assumption underlying this that the medical care being provided at Guantanamo detainees is the kind of medical care that doesn't raise concerns of its own. I think is one I'd like to test or so, see, or see so, debated. So I see you saying that. And I assume this is the case that you would also be you take the view that there should be a wider array of conditions of confinement, yes. which is what the larger heading there is. Yep. This should be litigated. Yep. You know, I feel that Congress, whether it should have or shouldn't have Congress, I think it was pretty clear, did not want those to be litigatable. So the question then becomes, was it unconstitutional for Congress to try to Which, of course, that? turns to some degree on what kind of constitutional rights the detainees have. Right, which brings us back to the overarching question that it's comically ridiculous that we didn't resolve years ago. Okay, aside from the suspension clause, what else, if anything, is like, applicable like there? due process. All the whole panoply of Fifth Amendment questions. Yep. All right, one last note on Guantanamo before we before we go away. Um, I, I, know, I, I, just, I briefly know this earlier, but um, we wanted to note the passing of Judge James Robertson um, judge Robertson was a longtime D.C. federal district judge. He even had been a, a FISA judge mm-hmm. for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I associated him most powerfully with um, he was the original district judge in Hamdan. Um, and so it was his yeah. ruling in November of 2004 that was the first ruling striking down the, the Bush-era military commit the pre-MCA military commission. And this is the idea that the executive branch, they might be able to have these if Congress wants them to have them, but they can't whip them up on their own discretion. Exactly so. And although he was reversed by the D.C. Circuit, the D.C. Circuit in turn was reversed by the Supreme Court. Right. So um, Judge Robertson also was, um, along with uh, Judge Carr, one of the former FISA judges um, who spoke out most powerfully in favor of reforms to the FISA court um, after the Snowden revelations. If I recall correctly, did he cross swords with Judge Bates? Yes. When Judge Bates wrote on behalf, uh, at least asserting he was writing on behalf of the Fisk. Yes. So, so there was that whole long thing where Judge Bates kept saying he was speaking for the entire, you know, right, sort of in the in the capacity of chief judge. Yep. Yep. And and Robertson was like, not so much, my friend. Um, so you know, I a dissenting I, view. Uh, yes, uh, um, you may be speaking for yourself and others, but you're not speaking for all of us. There you go. Um, so just a, a really interesting guy. I knew him a little bit. He was a lovely person. He was lovely. And he was he was often, especially once he went senior status, uh, we often saw him on yep. panels yep. and at the sort of events that national security law types went to. He was a frequent uh, speaker. And, and, and I think, you know, grounded in the idea that, like, you know, being part of the conversation was part of his job. Yeah, which is very cool. And there's, I'm happy to say there are a lot of federal judges who, who take that same example, yep. but he was a good model for that. Totally. So uh, he will be missed. Yeah, rest in peace. Um, all right. This this is a okay. depressing kind of Well, let's make it, I, don't, I was about to say, let's make it fun, but I was going to bring up our, the New York Giants. Are we through our run? Are we through the stuff? We're through the run of show. So we're two for volley. So, um... I guess I guess the, the, we have unplanned Les Mis frivolity. Yes. Um, one of our listeners had also asked us to say a bit about where we find our national security news. All right, let's um, do that first. And and I really don't want to talk about the Giants. <laughs> then we've said enough about them. Okay, in terms of keeping up with the sorts of things that then find their way into the run of show, plus the stuff that doesn't find the way into our run of show, but which we talk about anyways yeah. uh, on our own, um, 
What what would you describe? I, I mean, there's some obvious things to mention here. Uh, any student who asks me, how do I keep up with national security and law? I say, well, for, for starters, make sure you, you at least see what is being posted at Lawfare and right. Just so Security. You can, at least, you can at least subscribe to like the daily emails that like have a list of the posts from the previous day. Yeah, so keeping up keeping yep. up with your RSS feed or whatever it is you do with yep. what's on there for Lawfare and Just Security, there is not much of significance that's going to be missed between the two of them. True. Um, I also, this is, you know, my obsessive Twitter habits. So there are a handful of accounts where I actually have notifications for any time they tweet. Um, and these are folks who I generally really trust to sort of, you know, bring interesting news that I might not get from elsewhere. So um, Zoe Tillman, mm -hmm. um, who works for BuzzFeed, who's mm -hmm. a reporter for BuzzFeed, um, I get alerts for all of Zoe's tweets. Yeah, she, she's, she, she's a really she's really source. on the ball on like the courts, especially the D.C. and Maryland courts. Same. Um, I would say Ellen Nakashima yep. at the Washington Post for those of us who are big cybercom yep. geeks. Um, Katie Bo Williams geeks. for the Pentagon. Yep, absolutely. Um, and and you know there are others too. I mean, I you know there are. There's no one go-to source for like big court decisions. Yeah, well, so I would say like if you're making a good idea. Oh, by the way, it's it's actually raining in in Austin. Look at that. I just got Steve's window. And was so surprised to see rain. I had to comment on it. I know it sounds weird to I others. Think my car but... window's open because it was so hot. Oh, <laughs> do you want to run down there? No, nah. I'll just monologue while it's you're It's just open gone. a little. It's just like a crack, just so it doesn't oh like, get too That's hot in awesome. the car. Steve's car is getting soaked. All right, so Charlie Savage is a must-follow. Yep. Um, you know, David Sanger, uh, both New York Times, obviously. Yeah. Um, for SCOTUS news, Amy Howe um, mm -hmm. is usually she, who, who's one of the you know one of the bosses and founders of SCOTUS yeah. blog. Um, she usually has like really helpful you know breaking things at SCOTUS. Yeah. Um, uh, Julian Barnes. Yep. Um, I mean, there's so many. Mark Mazzetti. Now everyone uh, has their own way of like you know culling their Twitter account, right? But um, the for me, the question is like, which accounts do I actually get? active alerts for and which accounts do I follow passively. Right, right, right. So Twitter, I, I subscribe to a ton of like email update things. So I get like daily emails from a lot of different sources to see if I missed anything. But the reality is that there's just there's no reliable way to make sure you get all of it. I just hope that I get most of it. Yeah. I'd say for for things that we're likely to miss from an American perspective, uh Egil Talk, yep. which is the European Journal of International Laws yep. blog, um, it's in this, in the comparative style between American academic legal policy versus European, it's much more academic-y than, than my preferred flavor. And yet there's really high quality thought there. And you'll get updates on major European legal developments that you'll just miss in the United States. Totally. Um, for for cybersecurity related things and all things cyber domain, I always listen to Pat Gray's Risky Business. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's very much focused on, on tech. And, and cybersecurity from a technical perspective, but it gets into some legal aspects of things. And anyways, it's great fun. I mean, Adam and Pat, and now often Alex Stemos as well, they're just great to listen to. Mm -hmm. uh, Stuart Baker's uh, Steptoe Cyber Law podcast is like the, you know, just this legendary show that's so much fun. In part because Stuart himself is, he, by his own account, will tell you he's a provocateur. He's so much fun to listen to. And uh, and I bet Steve, it probably makes your blood boil, but he often makes me smile so much in the, some of the things he'll say. I, I enjoy Stuart, but I also I also wish that Stuart had had someone who could more regularly put him in his place. Well, you know, there are not that many voices in our line of work that take uh, Stuart's perspective. So I'm, even if it doesn't get as much pushback on show, the larger milieu is, is going a different direction. So I'm happy to have his voice out there. Like, I, like, like I, couldn't, I, I couldn't get away with the podcast by myself. Um, 
Well, you know, sometimes I don't push back much, so maybe you do. No. Well, but our <laughs> listeners do. Um, so what is there anything else to say? Um, I mean, that's really kind of it, right? It, it, the, the nature of the function is to find good aggregators to supplement yep. your own monitoring right. of the key journalists. That's right. And it's interesting, too, that we're talking about the key journalists, not key journalistic enterprises. I don't really particularly care where somebody's publishing so much as I care what I know their track record is for yeah, being able you know, to break stories. I wonder if Twitter has something to do with that. That like, Yeah, you know, know, it's made brands out of individuals more so than the – Individual journalists always had reputations and brands, but of now course. it's it's become possible to just follow the particular person. Yeah, and and that and you know, even as some of these folks are moving around because the market is more flexible and or problematic, right? Yeah. That that you know you can you can keep up with them as they move from publication to publication yeah. just by just by following them on Twitter. It's much less interesting, but this is true, of course, for academics who weigh in publicly as well. And I will say the most important and useful function of Twitter, in my view, which is otherwise a a cesspool and a dark terrible, toxic place. The most value added to me from being on Twitter is access to all of these people, right? And and seeing what they're oh, telling absolutely. me. And the news gathering and the news finding function that it provides. Yeah, no, the the, uh, the alert function is so much vastly more relevant. I can't frankly stand most of the commentary, snarking, biting back and forth. Right, just give me news. It's, it's road rage and social panels. media form. Right. right. Um, what's the, what is the first... Breaking news you remember getting from Twitter? Um, I think. I, I well, I don't know. Powerful... I, I can't say this. This is definitely not the first thing, but yeah. the thing that stood in my mind yeah. is really making me wake up to the unique information conveyance function. Yeah. Um, was during the Boston Marathon was bombing just, and the manhunt around that, it. That's where I am. The Boston Marathon bombing. Yeah. Um, the real time descriptions, and especially when the manhunt unfolded. But even before that, just wow. the, the first news, right? Because the, there was like a live ca- there was like a live finish line camera. Yeah. And then people were showing. And you, people were, you were brought onto the scene without much intermediation. And and without having to go like find. The TV. Yeah, absolutely. Now, speaking of finding things to watch, we have apparently independently found things to watch tonight in the form Woo-hoo! of Les Mis uh, right here on campus. Very exciting. It's the mm. Broadway in Austin series. Um, favorite character. Have you seen Les Mis before? Many times, yes. Okay, yeah, yeah. Favorite character. I mean, duh, Javert, hello. He is your favorite character? So, he, I mean, yes. Okay, you're saying it like there's like, it's so obvious. I wouldn't necessarily have guessed that. I don't know. He's, you know, he has such a, he has such a. He's the uh, richest character to you. I don't know about the richest character, but he has like, he has like the most, like he has such a fixed star, right? He has, he has the fixed Stars. star of. Well, there's also that. <laughs> he has this like, he has this one, like he is so dogmatic about integrity and honor, right? Like you know, he has his yeah. own very unique and discreet sense of what his job is. To the point why, you know, do we need to be careful of spoilers? Can we talk? Okay, listen, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> yeah, if you don't know the plot of him is, that right. sucks to be you. Right, so to your point, his, he's uh, to the point where it be, when it, when his beliefs and commitments become so contrary to what he's perceiving and now experiencing, it creates so much dissonance it drives him to his death. Exactly. All right. Um, a compelling character, the most sort of national security law-themed character, perhaps. That's what I'm saying. Uh, justice versus morality, or rule of law versus justice is probably the better way to say it there if we're going to give justice some real content. There you go. Um, also, also, on a more personal note, it's also the part that I can actually like almost sing. Like, <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Valjean's range is too broad, right? Valjean Mar- is way too high. Marius's range is too broad. But he's, he's within... 
more reach than he. I find him much more reachable than than Valjean. Well, yeah, but like, yeah. but there are a couple of songs from Marius. Also, yeah. Marius is a little like you know, Marius is an entitled little prig. I mean, you know, come on. Oh, come on. He he's the romantic protagonist of the story. That's kind of kind of likable. <laughs> he's got, uh, you know, he's just I he's just like la la la. I mean, you know, um, Marius. I do not doubt you mean it well, right? But like, you yeah, know. yeah. I, so I, I that like, whole when shit, Marius gets yelled at in red and black, like that's that, that's exactly so what I, I don't you like went right. Marius. One of the things I like so much, I love the whole like the the way that they sort of snipe at him is Marius in love at last I've never seen him ooh, ooh and ah <laughs> he, he carries on like he carries on like Don Juan and here it comes like Don Juan yes that's it's great it's better than an opera yeah, okay so we can just that's that. awesome um, I like that but also you know it's not like he has no growth he, empty chairs and empty empty chairs and empty tables his heart's broken and you realize oh what the hell we thought you know Youth, we were so foolish, and now you're all and dead. You're all why, dead. I, and why do I have survivor's guilt? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's deep. He grows a little. He does. He does. He does well for, considering his circumstances. Um, poor Eponine. Eponine's great. Uh, her song, her her individual song is is just phenomenal. On my own is incredible. Um, I mean, I, think, I, I mean, on my own is, has long been my favorite song. That's yeah, wonderful. What about I? I have always gotten such a great kick out of Master of the House. That's always good. Yeah, time, good I, mean, fun. Need, I mean, it's it's obvious. It's lowbrow, right. whatever. That's you, the whole point. It's you, so need, fun. You, need, you need the right actor to ham it up. I agree. I actually, I've seen it done badly. Yes. You, there's a way you can overdo that. You've yes. got to kind of play it a little reserved and let let the actions and the words be that's the funnier right. part. That's right. that's but right. to really overdo, you know, to come on triple time with the Cockney is, you know, you got to lighten up on that sometimes. Yep. Okay, what about the fact it's all done with various uh, class-based English accents for a French uh, show? Well, <laughs> what you know, was it? nobody's perfect. We do that like in American culture. We're so receptive to that. Like we, we see that in various settings. Well, the best part is all of these amazing... I guess because we can read it. That's how you can code with the accents. But the thing is, like, I mean, the, the flip side is you have all of these amazing non-American actors, right, who have fantastic American accents. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Hugh you Laurie. You mean like Christian Bale? Christian Bale, Hugh Laurie, um, Anna Torv, right? I mean, like, yeah. you know... No, people, people, real actors who can vary their accents so impressively. Great stuff. Are there any other final thoughts on Les Miserables? Um, I don't know. Um, what I, about, okay, should we draw the connection to Hong Kong? They've been Le, singing Le, songs Le, from Les Mis Le in Hong Kong. on Sesame Street? Oh, I haven't seen that. I'll check oh, that Cookie out. Monster? <laughs> I will definitely check that Who out. Who me am? <laughs> Who me am? Yes. <laughs> Who me am? Oh, that's great. I'll watch that with the kids before we go tonight. John Bon Bon. No, but did, did you see that at least yeah, at the yeah. Hong Kong yeah. airport, they were singing this? Now, um, it didn't end well in Les Mis for the people. Uh, right. Well, martyrdom is part of revolution, yeah, I guess they would I mean, say. I, and, uh, I don't think that the Hong Kong people are doesn't go that way. Martyrdom. Um, no, I don't think so. But I think they were very clever to do that yeah, and to tap yeah. into this vast wellspring of, you know, not deeply historically informed, but nonetheless, uh, right. there's De- symbolism. Delacroix, liberty leading the people. Which, by go. the way, my favorite painting in the Louvre. Is it? Yes. Uh, we were there earlier this summer and had a great tour guide. It was a really great experience. Yeah. But now we're getting so far off the rails, we should just wrap this up. All right. Well, the giants suck. Um, the Mets Cowboys are, are off to a great start. The Astros Met, are looking good. The, well, they gave up 21 runs last night. Buddy. But only after giving 21 runs right, plus 15 enough. runs. It, it, their, their net, their net, their their net, net, net was still comically high. Um, the Mets are doing exactly what I knew they were going to do, which is not actually going away. Just to just, just keep to, you hanging on. Just to on. keep me just destroyed. Um, and then really quickly, just before we go. Um, so as you know, this weekend my dad and I went to Target Field. 
oh, in Minneapolis. Because yeah. right, every year between our birthdays, my dad and I go to a new stadium that neither of us have been to before. We only so um, there's only one stadium left that neither of us have been to. Which one? The new Atlanta Stadium. Okay, um, sounds like you got a road. That's an easy road trip. Well, but there's a new stadium opening next year. Dallas, that's right, yeah. The yeah. Rangers. So that's actually, not, not as fun a trip, but well, I don't for you. Da, da, yeah. So, Dad, my dad hits Atlanta, so like he's like, I'll come to Dallas. I'm yeah. like, great. I remember going when uh, when the ballpark at Arlington yeah. was brand new, and part of that wave that, yeah. that uh, Camping Yard set off of these the more new, the old style and old style fields. God, so, that was an improvement. So, I have to say, so Target Field, the new one in Minneapolis, I really liked. Um, you don't miss the Metrodome? <laughs> oh, I've been to the Metrodome, and the Metrodome is unique. Um, <laughs> True. But, so Target Field, I mean, for folks who have been to like, like it's the, of all the other stadiums, the one it feels like the most to me is Nationals Park. Oh, really? But whereas like the 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 structure of the stadium, like where the big open spaces are, etc. Um, but the whereas I find Nationals Park to be deeply antiseptic um, and lacking in like personality and touches, uh-huh. and maybe that's just because I hate the Nationals. Target Field has all of that. Like there are cute little corners, there are nooks, there are you know interesting things in the stadium yeah. concourses. It's so easy to do that to give it character. I mean, mind you, it's an outdoor stadium in Minneapolis, yeah. which means that well, for two months of the year for baseball, no problem. Although you could get into some World Series trouble, you could. So, um, but I have to say, it, it didn't crack my top five, but it's it's right below that. It's in like the the second tier of stadiums. Now you got to tell us what's your top five. All right, so my top five in no particular. It's really a top four. Because um, right. it gets messy at five. All right. Yeah. Go My top, top four. four: Fenway, mm, classic. Wrigley, classic, classic. Um, San Francisco, good. Um, my favorite of the new style stadiums is yeah. San Francisco and Pittsburgh, which I think is uh, is right up there cool. as on, on the new style stadiums for for the overall sort of aesthetic and fan experience. Nice. Well, I can't wait to see what they turn up in Arlington. With yeah, the new that could be very cool. But and then and then the right behind that to me is Seattle, um, San Diego. Um, and I would put Target Field in that right in that yeah. second line of. What do you think stadiums. of Minute Maid Park? Do you or is, is that still the name of the Astros Park? Whatever it's called, yeah. um, I like it. So so I think the, the the retractable roof stadiums have one big problem, which is they all have to be boxy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, that, that's true. But you, you got to have it if you're going to play ball in Houston. No, no, in the listen, summer, I, but. And, and I think it's 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 done very well in Phoenix. Right, and it's done very well in Houston. My yeah. favorite though is Seattle. I think of of the retractable roof stadium, Seattle does it the best. Yeah. But Seattle had different constraints. Right, it's a rain issue. It's a rain issue, a not a heat issue. issue. And yeah. so, it's, so Safeco Field or whatever the hell it's called now is much more open air, even right. when the roof is closed. Right, you just need to have the top um, covered. But I, I mean, I love the Houston Stadium. It's just it's 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 constrained by geography by, by sort of physics. Um, in ways that the open air stadiums, I think, are not. By the way, you mentioned Fenway, and it reminds me. Did you hear? Did you hear what the Red Sox put on like the scoreboard or something? Uh, uh, Newsflash: Patriots sign John Bolton. <laughs> That's pretty good. I mean, it's good. I want to say, you know, I, I know that our Boston listeners, our sports fans, like my wife, are so bummed that the Red Sox were eliminated from the divisional contention mm. last night. Um, and it's just, it's so hard that only one of your professional sports teams <laughs> is the favorite to win the championship for the second year in a row. They just, looked so good. Oh my God, the Patriots look so good. It was insane. I, it, almost, it was almost worse than how bad the Giants were on Sunday. How good. The Patriots. Yeah, it was crazy. And, and now, it's an interesting when you're doing that well to go ahead and shake it up and bring in Antonio Brown on the theory that uh, oh, you know, it's the Patriots organization that'll subsume his uh, his annex. Um, maybe they're off to a smart start. Tom Brady's rolled out the red carpet. Tony Brown's like staying at his house with him and Giselle. 
Um, so it, if anyone can pull this off, it'll be the Patriots, and then it's just going to be. But if they don't, brutal how much better? I mean, but if they don't, they don't. They'll just, and they'll just cut him. Yeah. Won't, I mean, look at Josh Gordon. Like Josh Gordon actually has turned into you know who, who used to be a real troublemaker, right? Is now like there. You know, I mean, the if Tom Brady has all those weapons, and if the Patriots defense no, is as good sick. as it looks, it's sick. I just, I just, I, I just, I hate this. Yep. Well, that's right. The Cowboys will take him down. <laughs> it looked good. Okay, on that, but that might have been more of a. Giant they were playing thing. a triple A team. I mean, Ouch. the Giants, like the Giants, are playing the Bills on Sunday, and like the Giants are getting crushed by the. Yeah, Bills. I wonder what, what. Do you know what the line is on that? It's it's minus Daniel Jones. I wonder. I wonder if it's uh, the the best uh, you know favor the best point spread the Bills have had in a long time. Oh my gosh, the Giants. Oh. On that note. Uh, yeah. All right. He's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. God, the Giants suck. Stay safe out there. Adios.